Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you for listening, as always. Before we begin today, I'd just like to take this occasion to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast and helped support it over the past year. 2022 was a great year for the podcast, downloads increased by nearly 200%, and it would not have been possible without you all. So thank you for sticking with me thus far, and be sure to keep tuning in in the future, because I have big plans for the future of this show. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's get into the narrative. In the last episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration, we witnessed the 1868 outbreak of the Boshin War between the supporters of the Emperor and the Shogun. This war had been a long time in the making. For the past decade and a half, tensions had been building between the two groups rather steadily. They reached a high point in 1867, with the deaths of both Emperor Komei and the Shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi. Both Komei and Iemochi were anxious to maintain good relations with one another in the interest of national stability. To this end, they supported the policies of Kobugatai, the union of court and Bakufu. Bakufu, of course, referring to the central government of which the Shogun was the nominal head. Iemochi died in the summer of 1866 while leading the Shogun's punitive expedition against the domain of Choshu. Iemochi's successor, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was older and more ambitious than he was. When Yoshinobu ascended to the office of Shogun, he followed a policy of Fukoku Kyohei, or enriching the country and strengthening the army. To this end, he cultivated close economic and military ties with France. With their assistance, the Bakufu undertook projects to build up their industrial base and to reform their military. Meanwhile, Emperor Komei, mere months after confirming Yoshinobu's ascension as shogun, died under mysterious circumstances. His successor, the crown prince Mutsuhito, now known as Emperor Meiji, was very young, 14 years old to be precise. As such, he had no concrete political ideology to speak of. He had come under the influence of the imperial loyalists, people who wished to see the shogunate abolished and the absolute authority of the emperor restored. The most prominent proponents of this ideology hailed from the domains of Choshu and Satsuma. Naturally, their anti-Bakufu stance meant that Tokugawa Yoshinobu's reforms to the institution were greatly concerning to them. The men of Choshu and Satsuma began to fear the prospect of the Bakufu using its revitalized economic and military strength to crush its domestic opponents, i.e. themselves. It was for this reason, then, that the erstwhile rivals Choshu and Satsuma finally set aside their differences to form an alliance against the shogunate. So great was their fear of Yoshinobu that, even when he formally resigned his post as shogun in November 1867, they refused to stand down. They believed that while the Japanese government was sure to be reformed along western lines, Yoshinobu and the Tokugawa clan would certainly dominate the new government either way. In order to stop the ex-shogun from gaining influence over the young and malleable new emperor, Satsuma and its imperial loyalist allies took drastic measures. In January 1868, they launched a coup d'etat at the imperial palace in Kyoto, after which the proclamation of the restoration of imperial powers of old was promulgated. This edict abolished the institution of the shogunate and, as the name would imply, restored absolute political power to the emperor. Yoshinobu, being shut out of this new government entirely, refused to accept its legitimacy. He began to mobilize his army to march on Kyoto, where they would dislodge Satsuma and the other instigators of the coup and free the young emperor from their perfidious influence. It was en route to Kyoto that the shogunate army encountered the combined force of Choshu and Satsuma, now acting under the official capacity of the emperor at Toba Fushimi, just south of the imperial capital. 
The shogunate's army between the modernized elite forces of the Bakufu and the antiquated samurai soldiers of the Tokugawa vassal domains Aizu and Kuwana numbered about 15,000 soldiers. They outnumbered the so-called imperial army by a ratio of 3 to 1. However, the imperial army had a secret weapon lying in reserve, the standard of the emperor himself. On the third day of fighting, when they raised these standards aloft, the shogunate forces lost heart, despairing at the prospect of defying the emperor's will, and retreated from the battlefield towards Yoshinobu's stronghold at Osaka Castle. There, Tokugawa Yoshinobu made the fateful decision to abandon both the castle and his army, and to flee with a small retinue by ship to his capital of Edo, modern Tokyo. The shogunate army, demoralized, fled before the advancing imperial forces, who captured the castle and burned it to the ground. Although the imperial army had won a great victory at the Battle of Tobofushimi, they had yet to win the war. Yoshinobu and his followers escaped to Edo, and there was no telling what he was planning next. The imperial army, the ranks of which were now bolstered by contingents of troops from other domains such as Tosa, Hiroshima, and Tsu, prepared to march on Edo to confront the rebels. Yoshinobu, for his part, was quite unsure of what course of action to take next, teetering between surrendering and fighting to the bitter end. Each option had its appeal. On the one hand, Yoshinobu, although technically no longer the shogun, was still the head of the very powerful Tokugawa clan, and he had no desire to surrender his family's ancestral lands to the illegitimate government led by Choshu and Satsuma. On the other hand, Yoshinobu, like everyone else, had a deep and abiding reverence for the emperor. He did not wish to oppose the will of his imperial majesty, even if he was currently being manipulated and misled by duplicitous court officials and the power-hungry men of Choshu and Satsuma. He especially feared going down in history as a reviled imperial enemy. There is ample evidence that attests to Yoshinobu's uncertainty as to what to do next. The fact that he abandoned Osaka Castle with all his men still inside is taken as evidence that Yoshinobu had no real desire to keep up the fight for much longer. However, when he returned to Edo, which, side note, Yoshinobu's return to Edo in February 1868 marks the first time he had entered his capital city in his entire tenure as shogun. Anyway, upon his return to Edo, Yoshinobu wrote to his vassals and to the ministers of the Western powers that the shogunate was still very much in control of the country and that they should expect a swift restoration of Tokugawa power soon. And yet, mere days after issuing these bold statements, Yoshinobu wrote to Yamanuchi Yodo and Matsudara Shungaku, the two members of the restoration government with the most favorable opinion of him, that the incident at Tobofushimi was the work of unruly vassals and that he had played no part in instigating it. He asked them to argue his innocence before the emperor. That same day, Yoshinobu fired his war minister, Oguri Tadamasa, who was the loudest voice in the Bakufu government agitating for continuing the fight against the imperial government. Yoshinobu's meetings with the French consul to Japan, Leon Roche, at this time, also offer contradictory impressions of his state of mind. At the first of such meetings, on February 13th, Yoshinobu informed Roche of his belief that the shogunate forces would win a swift victory over the illegitimate government of Choshu and Satsuma, who were effectively holding the young emperor hostage. Two days later, in the second meeting between the former shogun and the French consul, Yoshinobu informed Roche of his intention to retire from public life and to surrender his position as shogun to his relative, Tokugawa Mochitsugu, the daimyo of Kishu. Their final meeting occurred on the 23rd of February. Yoshinobu attempted to secure from Roche a guarantee of continuing French support for the shogunate, and he discussed the possibility of defending northeastern Japan and ruling it as his own domain, separate from the emperor. 
On March 4th, it seemed that Yoshinobu finally made his decision. That day, he departed from Edo Castle and traveled to the Kanenji Temple in Ueno, just north of Edo. From there, he announced his intention to live out the rest of his life in voluntary confinement, and to devote himself to submission and penance for his unforgivable crime of opposing the emperor. His position as the head of the Tokugawa clan was ceded to Tokugawa Iesato, the five-year-old adoptive son of the penultimate shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi. The shogunate's resistance to imperial rule did not end with Yoshinobu's self-imposed retirement, however. In fact, some of Yoshinobu's allies and vassals were so enraged by his decision that the former shogun had to spend the rest of his life constantly on guard against assassination attempts. Leadership of the shogunate cause fell to the daimyo of Aizu and Kuwana domains, as well as a couple of skilled and charismatic Bakufu military officers. For instance, the Bakufu navy remained under the firm grasp of Admiral Enomoto Takiyaki, while leadership of the army fell to the new minister of war, Katsu Kaishu, who was briefly introduced in episode 3 as the naval reformer and founder of Kobe Naval Academy, who was nearly assassinated by Sakamoto Ryoma, but who was able to sway his would-be assassin over to his side. Leon Roche got to work on Katsu almost immediately. For whatever reason, the French were the only major foreign power absolutely convinced that the victory of the shogunate was essential to maintaining a standing diplomatic relationship with Japan. Roche and the French were anxious to see the shogunate prevail in this conflict. Roche presented Katsu with a war plan that he was certain would lead to victory. First, the shogunate would have to secure its base of power in the northeastern half of the country. Once that had been accomplished, they should proceed to retake Osaka, attacking by both land and sea. From there, they could take back the rest of the country. Roche's plan had broad support among the remaining Bakufu officials, but Katsu would hear absolutely none of it. He informed Roche that his services, and the services of the French military mission that was dispatched to Japan a year prior, were no longer necessary. Realizing the desperation of the shogunate's position and anxious to avoid any more bloodshed, Katsu had silently resolved to surrender Edo to the imperial army. At this time, the Restoration government was taking its first steps to assert its newly won authority. Historically, the emperor had been sequestered in his palatial complex at Kyoto, far from his subjects, the army, government officials, or anyone else for that matter. The officials of the new government wanted to change this. Towards that end, Okubo Toshimichi proposed moving the imperial capital from its ancient seat at Kyoto to Osaka, a more modern and cosmopolitan city. This proposal was met with resistance by the nobles of the court, many of whom had never left the confines of Kyoto in their entire lives. Still, even they recognized the need for the emperor to leave his palace, even if it was only temporarily. Akubo also proposed installing the emperor as the field commander of the imperial army, a move that was certain to boost their morale even further. On February 25th, Emperor Meiji left his palace for the first time since he was very young. He did not go far only across the city to Nijo Castle, the seat of Bakufu power within the imperial capital. There, a debate was held as to the feasibility of having the emperor lead the army in the field. Eventually, it was decided that Prince Taruhito was to lead in the emperor's stead. The court issued detailed instructions to the prince as to how the army was to conduct itself. These instructions served a dual purpose, as they were meant to demonstrate to the western powers that the imperial army was a modern military force that was willing to comply with the international conventions of warfare. Indeed, the new government seems to have been quite eager to cultivate ties with the foreign powers. On March 9th, it was announced that the emperor would grant in-person audiences to dignitaries of foreign countries, something that would have been considered unthinkable just a decade ago. But, as Irokura Tomomi and Okubo Toshimichi agreed, 
Every other advanced country allowed foreign dignitaries to be granted face-to-face meetings with their sovereigns, and Japan should follow suit. Emperor Meiji was receptive to these arguments and demonstrated his willingness to meet with the foreigners. On March 23rd, the first of such meetings occurred with the consuls of France and the Netherlands. Technically, the two dignitaries did not lay eyes on the person of the emperor as he was seated behind a screen. The ministers each gave short speeches, essentially saying that they recognized the emperor as the rightful sovereign of Japan and expressed their hope for cordial relations in the future. Despite the court's remarkably progressive attitude towards foreigners, anti-foreign sentiment in Japan had not disappeared completely. In fact, on March 8th, just one day before it was announced that the emperor was to see foreign ambassadors, the samurai of the Tosa domain killed 11 French soldiers at the treaty port of Sakai. The Tosa men alleged that the French men were meandering through the streets of the city in a drunken, disorderly fashion, while the French maintained that the soldiers had done absolutely nothing to provoke the samurai into action. French consul Leon Roche was absolutely incensed at these murders, and demanded that the Japanese pay an indemnity of $150,000, that the Tosa daimyo Yamanuchi Yodo issue a formal apology, and that the men responsible for the incident be put to death. The 20 men that were deemed to have been culpable for the incident were allowed the option of killing themselves instead of being executed. One by one, in full view of the remaining French crew members, the samurai plunged their swords deep into their abdomens and cut, spilling their entrails all over the ground. The Frenchmen were so disgusted by this display that, by the time the 11th man had disemboweled himself in such a manner, they demanded an immediate halt to the proceedings and that the remaining men be spared such an indignity. This request was granted. A second violent outburst of anti-foreign sentiment with even graver political implications occurred on March 24th. That day, the British minister Harry Parks and his associate, British diplomat Ernest Sadhow, were due to have their first audience with the emperor. The two had spent the first half of the day sightseeing in Kyoto, which had only been recently opened to foreign visitors at the time. The sight of western barbarians defiling the streets of the ancient capital was an affront to many a citizen. Quote, Many in the capital believed that if the foreigners were admitted to the palace, it would fatally weaken the land of the gods, and that if the foreigners were allowed to see the emperor's face, it would be a desecration of the imperial majesty. End quote. So, as Parks, Satow, and the rest of their party traveled the streets of Kyoto en route to the imperial palace, they were suddenly ambushed by two disgruntled samurai. The two samurai charged down either side of the street, wildly brandishing their swords and inflicting injuries on many of the diplomats' retinue although both Parks and Satow emerged unscathed. Two of the diplomats' Japanese companions managed to defeat one of the swordsmen, severing his head in the process. The other assailant fled the scene, but he was arrested a short while later. He expressed great regret at his actions, and asked to be executed in public so as to atone for his crimes, a request that the imperial government was more than happy to oblige. The audience with the emperor was moved back to April 14th to allow the British time to recuperate from the incident. Parks and the severely diminished party arrived at the Imperial Palace, where the Emperor expressed his deep regret at the incident. Parks responded, quote, A graver outrage had been committed upon the Emperor rather than upon himself. End quote. This time, the Emperor faced Parks and his interpreter directly, not through a screen, granting them the honor of being the first foreigners to ever lay eyes directly on a Japanese Emperor. Parks described this monumentous encounter thusly, quote, in the center was a canopy surrounded by four slender pillars of black lacquer, draped in silk, which was woven into a pattern in red and black. Under the canopy was seated the young Mikado, an antiquated term for the Emperor of Japan, seated in, or rather leaning against, a high chair. 
Beneath him knelt two princes of the imperial blood, ready to prompt him. As we entered the room, the Son of Heaven rose and acknowledged our bows. He was at the time a rather tall youth, with a bright eye and clear complexion. His demeanor was dignified, while becoming of the heir to a dynasty many centuries older than any sovereignty upon the face of the earth. He was dressed in a white coat with long padded trousers of crimson silk trailing like a lady's court train. His headdress was the same as that of his courtiers, though as a rule, it was surmounted by a long, stiff, flat plume of black gauze. I call it a plume for lack of a better word, but there was nothing feathery about it. His eyebrows were shaved off and painted high up on his forehead. His cheeks were rouged, and his lips were painted in red and gold. His teeth were blackened. It was no small feat to look dignified under such a travesty of nature, but the Sangre Azul would not be denied. It was not long, I might add, before the young sovereign cast adrift all these worn-out fashions and trammels of past ages, together with much else that was quite out of date. End quote. Needless to say, the emperor made quite an impression upon the two Englishmen. Meanwhile, the imperial army continued their march to Edo. As they marched on, they sang a song called Miyasan Miyasan that commemorated their victory at Tobofushimi. The lyrics of this song read, quote, My prince, my prince, what is that thing fluttering about in front of your horse? Do you not know? This is the imperial brocade ordering you to punish the throne's enemies. Shoot the enemies who have disobeyed the orders of the emperor who reigns over this country. Shoot the enemies without failure, soldiers of Satsuma and Joshu, end quote. All along the route to Edo, the now 50,000-strong imperial army pacified the daimyo who stood in their path. Any who still professed allegiance to the shogunate were to be shown no mercy, but for the most part, none dared to oppose the will of the emperor. On March 29th, the imperial army encountered a small force of some 300 shogunate troops at Katsunuma, in what is now Yamanashi Prefecture, some 100 or so kilometers from Edo. The shogunate forces were remnants of the Shinsengumi, and were led by their corps commander, Kondo Isami. Being outnumbered ten to one, the shogunate forces were, of course, routed. Over half their force was killed in action, and Kondo Asami himself was able to narrowly escape death or capture. He and the other survivors fled to Naragayama, in what is now Chiba Prefecture. Two months later, Kondo was captured there, convicted of the 1867 murder of Sakamoto Ryoma, and executed by decapitation on May 17th. By April, the Imperial Army had the city of Edo completely surrounded. At this time, they issued their demands for Edo Castle to surrender. They were as follows. The immediate surrender of Edo Castle, the surrender of all Tokugawa warships, weapons, and ammunition, that the samurai of the Bukufu follow Yoshinobu's example and go into voluntary confinement, and that some hundred or so shogunate ministers and military officers be handed over to be executed for their roles in instigating the combat at Toba Fushimi. At roughly the same time the Imperial Army was making preparations to take Edo, by force if necessary, the famous Charter Oath was promulgated. This oath formed the basis of the Meiji government, and indeed all subsequent Imperial Japanese governments. Some historians suggest that the timing of its promulgation was a strategic move on the part of the Imperial government, seeking to secure national unity in advance of what they were sure was to be a bloody struggle for the city of Edo. Nevertheless, the Charter Oath was not entirely cynical in either its content or its intention, and it is worth discussing at some length. The oath was authored by Yuri Kimimasa and Fukuoka Takachika, and it was revised into its final form by Choshu statesman Kido Takayoshi. It was heavily based on the eight-point plan, which had been written a year prior by the late Tosa Ronin Sakamoto Ryoma, and was promulgated on April 7, 1868 in Kyoto. 
The Charter Oath consisted of only five articles, and I will now read them all in full. Quote, 1. Deliberate councils shall be widely established and all matters decided by public discussion. 2. All classes, both high and low, shall unite in vigorously carrying out the administration of the affairs of state. 3. The common people, no less than the civil or military officers, shall be allowed to pursue his own calling so that there may be no discontent. 4. Evil customs of the past shall be broken off, and everything based upon the laws of nature. 5. Knowledge shall be sought throughout the world so as to strengthen the foundations of the imperial rule. End quote. Taken at face value, the Charter Oath seems rather liberal, even progressive, what with its democratic and meritocratic promises. As historian Donald Keane wrote, quote, Whether or not the oath was entirely progressive, the language was unprecedented in Japan, or indeed in any other country in the orbit of Chinese civilization. End quote. The thing about the Charter Oath was that it was so vaguely worded that it could appeal to all segments of Japanese society. And indeed, it could demonstrate Japan's modern and liberal outlook on government to the rest of the international community. By the same token, the vague language of the Charter Oath allowed it to remain a foundational document of Japanese government for decades to come. Much like the American Constitution, the meaning of certain points of the Charter Oath could be reinterpreted in different ways in different political contexts. The Charter Oath even remained relevant up until 1946, when Emperor Hirohito praised it as the basis of Japanese national policy. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For now, it should suffice to say that the Charter Oath, from the time of its promulgation in April 1868, would remain a critical document in Japanese politics for the foreseeable future. Katsu Kaishu, commander of the remaining shogunate forces in Edo, had come to realize the desperation of his situation. Bakufu troops escaping from Osaka Castle streamed into the city, and the Bakufu desperately recruited peasants from the surrounding countryside to serve as emergency levies, but they would not be enough. Between these two sources, the shogunate could only muster about 8,000 soldiers in the city, compared to the massive force of 50,000 that was rapidly approaching. The soldiers stationed in the city were restless, anxious for the final battle. A quote from Katsukaishu's journal, quote, The Tokugawa men were enraged. They had blood in their eyes. Many wept in anger. Their hair stood on end. The uproar in the castle was indescribable. Some wept tears of blood. Others said they would kill themselves. Still others said that they would rush the enemy on horseback alone and fight to the death. End quote. Many of these men were enraged at their leaders for having abandoned them. They especially resented Katsu because they believed somehow he had instigated Yoshinobu's retirement. Katsu nearly avoided being lynched by a mob of angry soldiers on the streets of Edo one night. Perturbed, Katsu wrote, quote, For disgracing Yoshinobu, they say they will cut off my head and give it as an offering to the god of war. End quote. But despite these rumors, Katsu had been loyal to Yoshinobu to the bitter end. He knew that Saigo Takamori would accept no less than complete and unconditional surrender from the Tokugawa clan. Katsu had no desire to fight what was sure to be a losing battle against the imperial army, but he was also determined to secure the most favorable terms of surrender he could, including leniency towards Yoshinobu, the Tokugawa clan and their retainers, and himself. In the event that negotiations should fall through, Katsu developed a contingency plan. He met with some 36 gangsters, criminals, gamblers, outcasts, and other men of ill repute, and paid them each a sizable sum from what was left of the Bakufu's monetary reserves. This money was for them to control their underlings and acquaintances, so as to maintain public order for the time being. However, in the event that negotiations fell through, these men were to burn Edo to the ground before the advancing imperial army could reach it, 
but not before the city's civilian population could be evacuated across Ezo Bay to the Bozo Peninsula. As the burning husk of the city descended into guerrilla warfare, Katsu would then dispatch 5,000 elite, French-trained troops into the city to fight one desperate last stand against the Imperial Army. Fortunately for all parties involved, however, this chain of events did not come to pass. Katsu sent a message to the Imperial Army Command, more or less threatening to carry out the contingency plan I just described, unless they agreed to negotiate better terms than what had already been demanded. The Imperial Command agreed and dispatched Saigo Takamori to negotiate on their behalf. Saigo and Katsu actually had a history with one another, although they had not seen each other in about three years. Katsu kicked off the negotiations by appealing to Saigo's morality, saying, quote, How ignoble it is that our magnificent country would descend into a bloody fight among brothers. The war that is about to begin will kill thousands. This war is not right in name, in principle, or even in reason. It is a result of personal grudges and not the actions of honorable men. End quote. He then issued his revised terms of surrender. They were as follows. Tokugawa Yoshinobu should be allowed to retire to his ancestral domain to live out a life of penance. Edo Castle should be placed under the custody of one of the cadet branches of the Tokugawa clan. All warships and weapons should be gathered together, and, at the conclusion of negotiations, the Tokugawa would be allowed to retain a portion of them, with the rest being sent directly to the imperial government. All Tokugawa vassals and retainers currently residing in Edo Castle should be given the option to follow Yoshinobu's example to go into retirement and live a life of penance. Clemency should be granted to the officers involved in the Battle of Tobofushimi. And finally, Tokugawa men who resort to violence and cannot be controlled by them should be suppressed by the Imperial Army. Saigo himself thought the terms reasonable, but he did not have the authority to accept demands or make counter-demands. So he had to take Katsu's proposal back to his commanding officers for their approval. Before he did so, however, he did what was in his authority to do, which was to call off the impending attack on Edo. The worst outcome had been avoided, at least for the time being. The Imperial High Command agreed to all but two of Katsu's demands, but Katsu had secured from them promises that they would not attack Edo, that Yoshinobu's life would be spared, and that the Tokugawa clan would be allowed to continue its existence as such. And so it was on a formal ceremony on May 4th, 1868, Edo Castle was formally surrendered to the Imperial Army. Lordship over the castle itself was handed over to the Owari Domain, one of the Fudai Daimyo that had defected to the Imperial cause, and the Imperial Army seized the castle's stores of weaponry and ammunition. Thanks to this legendary so-called meeting of the two heroes, Katsukaishu and Saigo Takamori, the dreadful outcome of a prolonged battle for Edo had been avoided. Katsu later wrote that if the Imperial government had sent anyone but Saigo to negotiate with him, the talks would have surely broken down, and he would have been blamed for it. But while much bloodshed had already been avoided, the war was by no means over yet. In Edo, the vast majority of Tokugawa soldiers laid down their arms and surrendered, but a group of extremist shogunate loyalists, known as the Shogitai, were causing trouble in the streets for the city's new occupiers. Katsu tried desperately to rein them in, but they did not recognize his authority either. As the imperial troops occupying the city pushed the Shogitai out, they regrouped to the order of 2,000 men at Ueno, the location of Kanenji Temple to which no Yoshinobu had retired. Their stated purpose was to protect the former shogun from the imperial forces that they were sure they wanted to cause harm to him. But in reality, they were cooking up a far-fetched scheme to continue their resistance against the imperial government. The abbot at Kanenji was a prince of the imperial blood, 
a cousin of the emperor named Kitsuhirakawa Yoshihisa, also known by his Buddhist name, Kogen. Prince Yoshihisa, as we will call him, was the centerpiece of a plot to set up an alternative regime to the imperial government. In the north of the country, some 30 or so domains still ostensibly refused to submit to the rule of the imperial government, even after Yoshinobu's retirement and the surrender of Edo. Known as the Northern Alliance, they could muster a combined 50,000 troops, about equal in number to the imperial army. To bolster the alliance's legitimacy, they planned to make Prince Yoshihisa the emperor and to declare Meiji to be illegitimate. Exactly how much of a willing participant in the scheme the prince was is unknown, although as of June 1868, he was trying to leave Ueno and return to Kyoto. He was halted in this attempt by a threat from the Shogatai, that they would commit mass suicide if he tried to leave, and that he would have to step over their dead bodies in order to get out. The threat worked, and Prince Yoshihisa stayed put in his temple. His presence therefore stalled an attack by the imperial army, which was reluctant to storm the temple complex, lest the prince be injured, or worse. But Saigo and the army would not sit idly by while the Shogatai fomented insurrection from the safety of the Kanenji temple. So, on July 4th, after a standoff lasting for several months, the imperial army attacked. Saigo himself led the initial assault on the main gate of the temple complex, but his men suffered heavy losses and were repulsed. It was thanks to the combined efforts of Choshu troops who attacked from the rear, and the Tosa artillerymen who fired their Armstrong guns from a hill overlooking the complex, that the day was won. Unfortunately, the Tosa men were not the most accurate shots, and a number of artillery shells went astray of their targets, hitting the temple itself and lighting it ablaze. While the Imperial Army was able to win the day, they could not save the 200-year-old Kaneji Temple, which burned to the ground. Thanks to modern restoration efforts, however, a reconstructed temple stands in the same location today. Prince Yoshihisa fled at the first sign of fighting, donning civilian clothing and slipping out of the temple complex. He hid out in Edo for some time, after which he went to, not to Kyoto, but to Sendai, the unofficial capital of the anti-imperial Northern Alliance. In August of that year, the 30 or so daimyo of the domains which made up the Northern Alliance swore an oath to continue to protect him and to advance his interests. The daimyos Usugi Mochinori of Yonezawa and Date Yoshikuni of Sendai were selected to be his viceroys, making them the de facto leaders of this alliance. Prince Yoshihisa was escorted to Sendai by the Admiral of the Bakufu Navy, Enomoto Takiyaki. The Tokugawa fleet, consisting of some 12 warships, remained in Edo Bay, while the victorious Imperial Army and the defeated Tokugawa debated as to what was to be done with it. In October, when the fleet was officially to be handed over to the Imperial government, Admiral Takiyaki seized seven of the ships and fled to Sendai with the prince in tow. While the Imperial Army set about pacifying Edo and the northern domains conspired to place Prince Yoshihisa on the Imperial throne, some important developments were going on at the Imperial Court in Kyoto. Of top priority for the Imperial Court was getting the young new emperor officially coronated. I will not bore you with the details and minutiae of the ceremony itself, but what is important to know is that the coronation of Emperor Meiji took place on September 12, 1868 at his palace in Kyoto. Before the ceremony, a group of scholars had intently studied Japanese traditions of the past so as to rid the coronation ceremony of the Chinese influence elements that it had acquired over the years and to make it more distinctly Japanese. This will be a somewhat recurring theme over the course of the Meiji Restoration. Of course, it was also at this time that Emperor Meiji, heretofore known as Prince Mutsuhito, would choose his name. I have been referring to him as Emperor Meiji so as to avoid confusion, but it was from this point forward that he would be known by that name. 
The name Meiji was adopted from a passage of the I Ching, at the suggestion of a Confucian scholar. The name, translated, means enlightened rule. Shortly after his coronation, it was announced that the emperor would be making a visit to Edo. Also concurrent with this announcement was a further announcement that the city's name would be changed from Edo to Tokyo, meaning eastern capital. The main purpose of the emperor's journey was national unity. While previous emperors had holed themselves up in their palaces, never laying eyes upon another human being other than their family members, servants, and courtiers, Emperor Meiji would be an emperor of the people. He would set out from his palace and see his subjects in the flesh. Already he had started to make steps towards this end, as earlier that year he had traveled the short distance from Kyoto to Osaka. The imperial visit to Tokyo would have special significance in this regard. The people in the eastern half of the country had suffered much under the boot of the Tokugawa military dictatorship, and especially in the last few months due to the ongoing civil war. It would do them well, they reasoned, to see their sovereign in person. Later on, Emperor Meiji would voice his feelings on the matter in an imperial decree. He declared that every part of the country was the emperor's land, and every person living on this land was like a child to him, and, like a father, he would be upset if even one of his subjects failed to find his or her place in society. So, in short, the imperial visit to Edo, now known as Tokyo, was undertaken with the intention of fostering national unity in the wake of the Civil War. It should also go without saying that Tokyo, as the former seat of the shogun, held special significance, and that the emperor's entry into the city would serve to symbolize the ultimate triumph of him over his enemies. It was for these reasons that, on November 6th, 1868, the emperor, carried in a palanquin, set off from Kyoto to Tokyo. He was accompanied by a massive retinue of court nobles, loyal daimyo, and, of course, soldiers. After all, there was still an active civil war going on. As the emperor planned and began his journey to Tokyo, his army set out from the city in order to pacify the northeast of the country. As mentioned previously, resistance to the imperial government was carried out by an alliance of some 30 domains centered on the major urban center of Sendai. As the emperor traveled along the highway that connected the two great cities of Edo and Kyoto, he was met with a courtier who rushed from the imperial palace to deliver a message to him. Apparently, shortly after the emperor's departure from the city, the sacred Toriyi gate of the Toyuke shrine had spontaneously collapsed. The Shinto priests had interpreted this as an ill omen for the emperor's journey, and so they sent a messenger to urge him to return to Kyoto post-haste. Iwakuro Tomomi, the person most responsible for this endeavor, however, was unconcerned by this. He promised to say a couple special prayers to the sun goddess Amaterasu, and sent the messenger back on his way. Indeed, in spite of the bad omen, the journey was rather pleasant and unmarred by unfortunate events. The emperor got to marvel at the sights along the way, particularly the Pacific Ocean and Mount Fuji, neither of which an emperor had laid eyes on since the legendary first Emperor Jimu of the 600s BCE. What's more, further news reached the emperor as he traveled, fortuitous news regarding the war in the northeast. The Sendai Domain surrendered to the Imperial Army on November 1st. One week later, the Aizu Domain also surrendered. They were followed by the Shonai Domain on November 9th, the Nagaoka Domain on November 19th, and the Morioka Domain on November 11th. This news was met with great excitement from the Emperor and his retinue. There is one interesting anecdote from the Siege of Aizu that I will relate here. On October 6th, the Imperial Army defeated the combined force of Bakufu and Aizu troops at the Battle of Bonari Pass. Now, in the Aizu army, there was a military unit known as the Byakoatai, or the White Tiger Unit. This was a reserve unit consisting almost entirely of young boys, and by young, I mean to say that the eldest among them was 16 years old. 
as the Imperial forces surrounded Izuk Castle and put it to siege on November 8th, a squad of 20 of these soldiers became separated from their comrades. They found themselves on a hill overlooking the castle, which they saw was in flames. Naturally, they assumed that the castle had fallen to the Imperial army. So these 20 Byakotai soldiers knelt down on this hill and committed seppuku en masse. The side irony of it was that the, the castle had not in fact fallen. The Aizu forces would manage to put up resistance to the Imperial army for another month. The only reason the story has come down to us was because of one young Aizu samurai, Ienuma Sadakishi, failed to kill himself and was rescued by a local peasant. He ended up living until 1931, when he died at the age of 76. Three years before his death, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini was told the story of him and his Beacotai comrades, and was so struck by the boy's loyalty and valor that he donated a marble column from the Italian city of Pompeii to stand as a monument on the hill where they had committed seppuku. Also standing at the location is a stone bearing the words of a poem by Aizo Daimyo Matsudara Katamori, quote, No matter how many people wash the stones with their tears, their names will never vanish from this world. With the surrender of these aforementioned domains and the collapse of the Northern Alliance, the Boshin War had been all but won by the pro-imperial forces. At this point, there remained only the issue of Admiral Takayaki, who stubbornly continued his resistance. Before the imperial army could take the city of Sendai, Enomoto took his navy and fled. He also took with him two more ships, which he borrowed from the Sendai domain, bringing his total up to nine ships. Aboard were some 2,000 naval personnel, 1,000 extra shogunate troops who refused to give up the cause. Also among his passengers were, crucially, a number of former Bakufu officials and administrators, as well as a small clique of French military advisors. Their destination was Hakodate, the administrative center of the northern island of Hokkaido. Hokkaido, which was then known as Ezo, was historically, despite being the second largest island in the Japanese archipelago, in the words of historian Marius Jensen, quote, not much prized or inhabited by the Japanese, end quote. Although today it is recognized as an imperial part of Japan, Hokkaido, up until very recently, had not been conceived as part of Japan, but as a foreign land. It had been annexed by Japan relatively recently, in 1807, in response to Russian territorial encroachment. The Japanese settlement on the island remained rather sparse until the 1870s. The island was mostly inhabited by the indigenous Ainu people, whom most Japanese considered to be a race distinct from their own. Despite these facts, or perhaps even because of them, the island of Hokkaido, or Ezo, was chosen by Enomoto and the last shogunate holdouts as the perfect location to stage their last stand, and so it was that they took over the city of Hakodate on December 4th with little resistance. Emperor Meiji entered Tokyo on November 20th, 1868 at around 9 a.m. He was greeted on the outskirts of the city by his cousin and commander of his army, Prince Taruhito, and a number of other princes of the imperial blood. The emperor and his retinue all donned formal costumes and carried ceremonial swords at their sides for their official entrance into the city. This was done at the behest of Irokoro Tomomi, who believed that such an impressive display was necessary to awe the populace, who had lived so long under the Tokugawa, with the resplendence of the imperial court at Kyoto. An English-language account described the emperor's entry into the city as follows, quote, Far as the eye could see on either side, the roads were densely packed with the crouching populace. When the black laggard imperial palanquin, about six feet square, believed to be carrying the person of the emperor and adorned with the golden image of a phoenix on a dome-shaped roof reached the crowds, the people, without order or signal, turned their faces to the earth. No man dared to move or speak, and all seemed to hold their breath for their very awe, 
as the mysterious presence was passing by. End quote. That afternoon, Emperor Meiji entered Edo Castle for the first time, the complex that was to be his residence in due time. The emperor commemorated his visit by doling out to the citizens of Tokyo a vast amount of sake. 2,900 barrels of rice wine were given away. For two days, the city was a veritable carnival, as the citizens of Tokyo enjoyed their emperor's act of largesse. The emperor did not spend all his time in Tokyo sightseeing or reveling. He also had work to do. On January 11th, Emperor Meiji boarded the imperial frigate Fuji, and from there observed naval maneuvers in Edo Bay. He was apparently so impressed by the display that shortly thereafter, he issued an edict announcing his intention to strengthen the navy further. Over the course of the next month, he met with the foreign diplomats based out of Yokohama in a series of face-to-face -face audiences. Again, the significance of the emperor meeting with foreign dignitaries in person should not be understated. Emperor Meiji was clearly very eager to cultivate good diplomatic relations with the foreign powers. During these meetings, the emperor and his interlocutors urged the foreign powers to abandon their policy of neutrality in the Boshin War and to officially announce their backing of the imperial government. The imperial government was confident of victory, he told them. So confident, in fact, that commander of the army Prince Taruhito formally returned the imperial banners that had played such a decisive role at Toba Fushimi back to the emperor. Specifically, Meiji and his ministers were angling to gain possession of the USS Stonewall Jackson, an American ironclad frigate that had been commissioned by the Bakufu, but could not be handed over to them before the Boshin War took out. It was now sitting idly in Yokohama Bay. Emperor Meiji's cabinet knew that they would need to muster all the naval strength they possibly could in order to confront Enomoto's navy at Hakodate. However, the ministers of the foreign powers still refused to take sides while the civil war was technically ongoing. The British minister Harry Parks, who was one of the emperor's strongest supporters from among the foreign powers, agreed to lobby the others on the imperial government's behalf. He was successfully able to convince the other foreign ministers to officially end their policy of neutrality and throw their support behind the imperial government. Shortly thereafter, custody of the USS Stonewall Jackson was transferred over to Japan. Despite the promises of Hirokuro Tomomi that the ship would not be used against Enomoto's navy, no sooner had the vessel been rechristened as the Kotetsu than the ship was on its way to Hakodate to confront the shogunate holdouts. Meanwhile, on Hokkaido, Enomoto Takeaki and the shogunate holdouts began to consolidate their control over the island. In mid-December, Enomoto's forces managed to seize the modern five-star fortress at Goryokaku, effectively ridding Hokkaido of all imperial-aligned troops and cementing their occupation. In early January 1869, he sent a memorandum to the imperial government requesting to be given rights to oversee the development of the island of Hokkaido on their behalf. The implication was that the Tokugawa clan and its former retainers would be allowed to resettle on the island and to run it more or less autonomously. This request was categorically rejected. In response, on January 27, 1869, Hokkaido was proclaimed to be an independent country. The government of this new state was to be, interestingly enough, a republic. The Republic of Ezo, as it is known to history, has the distinction of being the first republican government in Asia. Little has been written about the structure of the new Ezo republican government. It has been said that it has been modeled on the United States, but in what respects specifically, I do not know. Universal suffrage was proclaimed, but only among members of the samurai class. In the first election, Admiral Enomoto was unanimously elected president of the new republic. Various former Bakufu officials were elected to cabinet positions, and French military advisor Jules Brunet effectively acted as Enomoto's prime minister. Quote, Brunet has taken charge of everything, customs, municipality, fortifications, army, everything passed through his hands. 
The simple Japanese are but puppets whom he manipulates with great skill. He has carried out a veritable 1789 French Revolution in this brave new Japan. The election of leaders and determination of rank by merit and not by birth are fabulous things for this country, and he has always been able to do things very well, considering the seriousness of the situation. End quote. The Republic of Ezo even managed to acquire limited diplomatic recognition from France, likely to Brunei's intercession. Meanwhile in Tokyo, with the emperor's business there concluded, he and his retinue departed the city on January 20th and returned to Kyoto on February 5th. The emperor's journey to Tokyo had caused no small amount of consternation at the imperial court in Kyoto. They worried that his majesty intended to abandon the ancient capital of Kyoto in favor of Edo entirely. After all, Edo had been renamed Tokyo, or Eastern Capital. What did these events pretend if not a change in capital cities? Seeking to ease these fears, Iwakuro Tomomi issued a statement in which he reassured the anxious court nobles that the emperor would remain in his ancestral seat of Kyoto and that they would not be displaced. Concurrently, however, it was announced that Emperor Meiji planned to make a second trip to Tokyo in the spring. Their fears were heightened even further that autumn, when they learned of the empress's intention to join her husband in Tokyo. Emperor Meiji never did return to Kyoto until 1877, with the exception of brief visits. Although it was never made official, Tokyo became the capital of Japan in 1869 upon the emperor's second visit. From henceforth, the imperial residence was to be in Edo Castle, and the various organs of government followed him there. In Hokkaido, the days of the Ezo Republic were clearly numbered. As the imperial navy reached the vicinity, a group of samurai hatched a bold plan to stop them. They piloted three of their ships towards the imperial fleet, flying American flags. When they were close enough, they dropped the stars and bars and replaced it with the red star of the Republic of Ezo. A boarding party of samurai attempted to board the jewel of the Imperial Navy, the Kotetsu, but were repulsed by Gatling on fire. Fourteen rebels were killed in the attack and the rebel ships were made to flee. One of their ships ran aground in the process. The Ezo rebels suffered an even greater loss when their own flagship, the Kayomaru, was also wrecked off the Hokkaido coast. Enomoto Takayaki and his chief French officer, Jules Brunet, managed to escape unscathed, but a whole cache of weapons and ammunition were lost to the sea. The end of Japan's short-lived Republican experiment came in the spring of that year. In April, the Imperial Army landed 7,000 troops on Hokkaido shores. As they made their way to the Republican capital of Hakodate, the Imperial Navy engaged with the Republican Navy in Hakodate Bay. Superior in number to their opponent, and with more modern ships, the Imperial Navy dealt the rebels a sound defeat, sinking two rebel ships and capturing three. The naval battle was followed by a land battle in June. Fighting centered around the Goryokaku Fortress, and contemporary descriptions of the Battle of Hakodate depict the rebel soldiers wielding swords and spears against the Imperial forces with rifles and Western military uniforms, but the truth of the matter was that both sides were more or less equally matched in terms of technological advancement. Still, the Imperial forces vastly outnumbered the rebels, and nearly half their number were killed. Finally, on June 26th, Enomoto Takeaki formally surrendered to the Imperial Army, thus ending the last of the armed resistance to the Meiji Restoration, and, although they did not know it yet, effectively ending the samurai way of life. But we will discuss those finer details at a later date. In two weeks, be sure to tune in again as we discuss Emperor Meiji and his government's attempts to further reform Japan into a modern centralized nation-state capable of contending with the foreign powers. If you like this episode, please consider giving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. 
Alternatively, you can address these things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode. Additionally, if you enjoy the show and would like to help support it financially, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon or purchasing some books from me on eBay. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening, as always. I'm your host, Will O'Connor, signing off. Oh,